Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, Blog Talk listeners. It is I, Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday. Chuck Morse speaks noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Of course, our second hour is nationally syndicated on Cyber Station USA Radio Network, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. You're welcome to join the conversation. 347-327-9849 is the number. Come on down. That number again, 347 347- Three two seven nine eight four nine. What is in your mind this afternoon? My guest this segment is Nancy Spinaeus. She is the she's a journalist. She's the editor in chief of EIR magazine, publication of the LaRouche movement. She is a founding member of Lyndon LaRouche's political movement. Nancy, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Uh, Nancy, your magazine. Uh, uh, I got a press release. Um, pertaining to uh, excerpts from the magazine, which are calling for the impeachment of President Barack Hussein Obama. Uh, could you Indeed. please draw us, yes, could you please draw us a sketch with regard to the in, in, indictment against uh, President Obama? Well, um, I could go way back uh, when we first put this out launched by Mr. LaRouche, it was 2010. But really the question has come to a point where we think that no one can deny the urgency of getting rid of this guy uh, and his constitutional violations, particularly with the fact that we now have this murder of an ambassador uh, and the evidence clearly points to complicity on the part of the administration in three ways. Can I briefly go through those? By all means. Um, The first way is that the Obama has, contrary to his promise, that's not unfamiliar to people, uh, Mm -hmm. not covered up for the original Saudi sponsorship of the 9-11 terror attack. He promised that he would release pages that indict the Saudis for funding these terrorists, you know, harboring them, training them, and so forth. He has not done it. In fact, he had his Solicitor General argue in court against, uh, in order to protect the Saudi royal family from a suit. That's number one. Okay, now, let me focus a little bit on that then, Nancy. Um, well, first of all, that of course goes back to the Bush administration. So, um, I suppose the uh, the charge of impeachment should have been brought against George W. Bush. And probably well, not. we worked on it. We worked right? on no, it. No, I, I understand. <laughs> no, but but your basically your your thesis is that uh, the U.S. government deliberately and consciously trained, armed, and helped and financed the terrorists who attacked us on 9-11. Is that right? Not the U.S. government. The Saudi government okay. did that well, well, with what the is protection we, what was and complicity of the Bush administration. All right. Well, let me, let me just go to that. 
by heavily by cover-up because okay. that material is all available. And we know from people who have seen the material, mm-hmm. we know from people who were involved in the investigation, such as former Senator Bob Graham of Florida, that this material exists. Well, I, I would like to see it as well so I can get a firsthand uh, ability to comment on it. But let, let me get more specific here. What you're say, well, First of all, the United States has been allied with the Saudi royal family going all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt. Um, I think that it was right after World War II that Roosevelt, on his way to Yalta, met with the Saudi prince on a ship outside of Alexandria Harbor in Egypt, where he basically signed a treaty transferring the British sovereignty or sovereignty of Saudi Arabia over to the United States, mainly because the British, after World War II, were so exhausted and defeated that they could no longer guarantee you know, the Saudi continu- continuancy. So I think it's safe to say that every administration from that point on, both Democrat and Republican, have basically been closely involved with the Saudis, and they have sort of overseen and protected the Saudis. They're kind of an informal protectorate, and that was mostly in response, of course, to the Cold War. But what you Excuse seem me. to be suggesting here I, is, I don't, I don't agree, but go okay, ahead. Okay, but... But what you seem to be suggesting here is something that's a bit more direct, which is that the U.S. government, and I don't know if you're saying it was the Bush administration or the Clinton administration or maybe before, were the, the alliance with the Saudis involved their direct knowledge of the development of these terrorists and this terror cell that would, would um, blow up the World Trade Center. What I'm saying is very – is limited – because there's a limited amount of knowledge that I have and that executive intelligence review and our intelligence staff has, although we have a lot of sources who sure. say a lot of things, but we check them out. Right? Uh, what I'm saying is that there is evidence that was gathered after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there's evidence long before 9-11 about the Saudi Arabian role with Great Britain, not the U.S. Right. administration sure. for the most part, well, that goes way in back. fostering the most extreme terrorists in the Muslim world, you know, period, right? Absolutely. As a tool of empire chaos destruction and yep. against the very existence of nation states. The second thing I'm saying is that that apparatus was involved in running al-Qaeda and sure. running the terror attack on 9-11. And the third thing I'm saying is that the investigation that occurred afterwards revealed that there were FBI agents who were involved with some of these terrorists. Therefore, it would appear that they knew that these were bad guys mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. likely to do something. Uh, but we've not investigated them or whatever. We've not you know, interviewed them, um, but they have been protected, and the whole Saudi money trail to a number of these terrorists have been, who subsequently died in 9/11, um, have been, has been covered up and protected. The best source you really have on this, and I would really urge people, I believe it's on the LaRouche Pack website, but it's definitely on the LaRouche Pub website, 
mm-hmm. uh, LA, the EIR-related website, is a review that Jeffrey Steinberg did of a book by Senator Graham that goes through exactly how he encountered the cover-up and what he discovered and his concern which he's expressed just as of two weeks ago, you know, that this is an ongoing fight to try to release these 28 pages of the 9-11 report, that these networks have not been rolled up, right? And then almost immediately after he says this, we have this operation in Libya. All right, well, let me, let me get to that. But, Nancy, okay, my guest is Nancy Spanay, is editor of EIR Magazine. Spanus? Spanus? Spanus. German. It, it's really Spanaus, but we'll we'll go with the English pronunciation. The English for the Latin pronunciation. All right. Yeah. And editor of EIR Magazine, calling for the impeachment of President Barack Obama. Uh, Nancy, I, I entirely agree with your analysis of the British involvement with the Saudis. I think it probably goes back. I've even seen material that indicates it goes back to the very first development of the family and their alliance with the Wahhabi sect uh, in the persons, right. in the founder of that sect, Wahhab, uh, who uh, there's evidence that he might have been in touch with British uh, intelligence, and that, yes, it did spawn this radical movement, this really far right-wing uh, you know, analysis of religion that has nothing to do with conventional Islam. And that it was it's this real beyond really beyond what anybody in the United States would really think of as right wing even I would say right I mean, it's a, well I, I mean that a, by conventional terms I mean it's not right wing mm-hmm. in terms of you know standing for limited government, which is you know right. hardly in fact quite the opposite. you might even say literally it's quite left wing but putting that aside, it was a movement that that hybridized Islam into this radicalized sect that would seek world order and, and that would engage in terror as a means of achieving it. And that, that's been the, the lead motif ever since in terms of uh, Saudi money then eventually going once the Saudis struck, struck oil in the 1940s uh, to fu- fund these uh, madrasas and the, the development of this, uh, this infrastructure that now is um, terrorizing much of the planet. Um, the, the question of bringing us back t- up to the present time is whether or but not that was our just government. point number one. Yeah, but 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 and you're right to point to the fact that there were FBI agents investigating the 19 or the 20 hijackers before that event. In fact, uh, Nancy, this issue came up during my congressional campaign against Barney Frank in 2004, when I discovered uh-huh. that Congressman Barney Frank sponsored what is called what was proudly called the Frank Amendment, which passed Congress in nineteen ninety, that made it possible for these terrorists to come into the United States with legal visas. Barney mm-hmm. felt that um you know in order for the government to keep people out of the country they had to prove that they'd been involved in quote terrorist activities, unquote. They couldn't basically use their own judgment and that included our embassy officials and these guys came into the United States through the German embassy because they the the ambassador couldn't keep him out. So mm-hmm. suddenly after that event according to Woolsey the CIA had, the head of the CIA under Clinton the, the 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 floodgates were open to terrorists who came in this country began recruiting people began raising money and sending it to these you know so-called foundations in in the in the West Bank and Gaza and elsewhere 
and eventually uh, who blew up the World Trade Center. So, you know, I think that what also happened as a result of the Frank Amendment, which was passed and signed into law by George H.W. Bush in 1990, was that uh, it forbid the various government agencies to coordinate their intelligence. So the FBI could not, no longer talk to the CIA, could no longer talk to, you know, other security agencies. And, and so as a result, we had this really bizarre situation where we had various government agencies, particularly in the FBI, investigating these terrorists, but they couldn't say anything about it. They couldn't do anything about it. They, their hands were tied in various ways. I mean, it goes actually you, back to... Do you really think that that, that that was the case? I mean... I, it was I, the case. I'm, I'm not disputing. I have evidence. I wrote a book about that it. The law was that uh, that the law was that. But we know that there's an awful lot of discussion that occurs among people. You know, even if it's not well, yeah, mandated. Well, the problem is that right? legally when they it's were a not high level to... of national security. You know, but when look, it's a this, threat. this also came out during the uh, 9/11 hearings after the fact when it turned out that a high-level figure in uh, I think it was the Clinton administration. I forget her name. She was the one who said that this wall had to be put up between these agencies in order to keep, you know, security from getting too high and too powerful in this country, and that uh, at least officially they weren't supposed to talk to each other. There was a there was basically an atmosphere of rivalry between them. They all had their own, you know, little dossiers, and the investigation was not coordinated until after 9/11, when of course Homeland Security took over the operation and and at least put in place a system where the government could actually look at, at at these people, and it also got rid of the Frank Amendment, or at least parts of it, so that they could no longer come into the country legally with visas without being investigated. Um, this, I mean, I wrote a book about this, uh, and, um, uh-huh. you know, I, okay. I actually sent a letter about it to members of Congress during my campaign, and the result was that Frank was removed from the Homeland Security Committee. And I, oh. I debated oh. Frank in person and, and, and called him out on it, uh, right, right to his face. So, and he, you know, he basically said, "Well, well as you know, we we in our movement have our problems with Barney Frank as well." <laughs> <laughs> but but, but bringing bring things to the present, now we have a situation, and I think your analysis is largely correct, by the way, that uh, in which the government is still covering up aspects of of this uh, of the event. I think that the 9-11 Commission was somewhat of a whitewash in that they did not name names and they did not really look at the people that allowed these terrorists to come into the country, allowed them to operate freely with legal visas, and eventually allowed them to And they didn't look at the people who funded them. I mean, follow the money, right, is A number one in terms of investigation. And when you've got – I mean, that was our big breakthrough on the 9-11 – investigation, which EIR and the LaRouche movement blew, which is the whole Al-Yamama scandal. Are you familiar with that? That was the money source, one of the major money sources for the terrorist trust fund that the Saudis have to deploy came with an arms deal made between Prince Bandar al-Satan and Margaret Thatcher in the, I can't tell you the exact date because I didn't look up that fact, but anyway, uh, you know, in the 1990s. And this, there was a padding in that deal, right? This this can be found in the uh, LaRouche pub site um, 
yeah, you know, dot com. We have a mm-hmm. tremendous archive, right? Article by Jeffrey Steinberg uh, on the big, the scandal of the century. That's basically what we called it. That this deal, uh, which was an arms deal between uh, British uh, BAE, uh, British Arms, whatever that uh, uh, the huge British arms company, mm-hmm. and the Saudi government, to where the British were to provide arms for oil, but right. there was a padding of the account in such a way that there was a huge slush fund created from this mm-hmm. that permitted not just the individual corruption of Prince Bandar, which was big news you know, in the sure. late 2000s, but a massive slush fund done. You know, Mr. Steinberg documented this up the wazoo, and that is so is a you can actually find a a a string to pull as it is as it were for the money source for this massive uh, indi- uh fund slush fund for terrorists and of course london and what was you know is called londonistan right <laughs> by right, sure. many people around the world because it you know talk about letting people into london or not letting them out that's when right they, that's right. People want they to say, have them and incubating people. terrorism. I mean, this is where you've got all over the world in Syria today. You know, the the so-called Syrian rebels are speaking English, right? Because well, they say that there are more the, people now in in Great Britain that uh, go to a mosque on Friday than that go to the Anglican church on Sunday. And I guess <laughs> I that, don't by, know. By, Could be. Yeah. I mean, there, actually, there was an article about this a while ago, but. Um, Nancy, exactly where was the money coming from that went into the slush fund? The money was coming from the deal between BAE and the Saudis. The Saudis so who were put the money in? Saudis? The, the Brits. The Brits. They were oh. buying the, the transfer. They got oil for arms. You know, they supplied arms for oil. Right. But there was a padding of the uh, in the price arrangement there. Mm-hmm. That led to the creation of a slush fund that was well, unaccounted for like, in the books. It sounds to me like British bankers and international bankers were trying to make a buck off of the um, the, the arms deal, well, and that that doesn't but surprise me at all. It wasn't just the buck, though, because this was functioned to provide a huge fund, which was then used and shows up in the international terrorist network that the Saudis run. No, I I understand that. I just think that there needs to be a little bit more, something a little less skimpy in terms of proof that... Read the article. uh, I will, and please send it to me, and I'll interview the author. Okay, I will. But that the British were consciously, or for that matter, the investors involved in this fund, were consciously and willingly seeking to develop what would become the terrorist infrastructure. I mean, I don't doubt that they were, you know, trading arms to the Saudis. That that's oh, sure, this is big, it's a much okay, bigger yeah. issue than that. I mean, oh yeah, that's a much bigger business than just the British too. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But but I need to see some sort of proof that, that that they knew that they were setting up the terrorist infrastructure, and that also the implication of the United States. I mean, this is let's get back to President Obama. Your, okay. your 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 call for impeachment is based upon the fact Point. that 
they continue to obfuscate when it comes to the release of this information which uh, of something that happened during the Bush administration. I don't think that's an impeachable offense. I think they should release it as long as there's not a national security element to it. But uh, I don't okay. think he's done anything that, that would require let me, let me just uh, – let me give a, uh, an overview and then hone in on point two, right? Sure. Uh, our, our, our initial indictment here, which of – Obama in this particular horror story uh, was based on his complicity in this atrocity in three ways. One was covering up for the terror network, which is the same as the terror network back in 9-11, so therefore it's material that he does not release the material from then. Number two was his illegal war against Libya, Right. To I'm begin with, with that one. a year ago, which it was known. Uh, I don't have absolute proof, but there's enough signs on the uh, on the table that it is very clear they knew that they would be unleashing the Al Qaeda jihadi networks in that country. And number two, and number three is the actual criminal negligence in terms of security for the ambassador and his associates, which resulted in his death. When you put right. all those three things together, you mm -hmm. then get into uh, an area where this guy is a clear and present danger to the United States. Um, in the number two, waging the war, he outright violated the Constitution. Yes, this that, that is I not entirely agree. The one, the one that, point that I completely agree with you on is number two, and I said so at the time, that not only did he not go to Congress and get a declaration of war, but he didn't even, you know, there hasn't been a declaration of war, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 of the Constitution, since World War II. But nevertheless, right. at least, you know, Johnson, when he went to Vietnam, and, and George W. Bush and, and Clinton, when they started bombing Iraq, at least they got congressional approval of something right. that was just short of a war. In the case of, of Iraq, I mean, in the case of Libya, uh, Obama never even contacted Congress. I think he, he took a phone call from, from Boehner, like about a week after the bombing started, and basically told him what they were doing, and there was no consultation. And then when uh, Secretary of Defense Panetta was interviewed in Congress by uh, Congressman Sessions from, from Alabama, and he asked Panetta, why didn't you get congressional approval? Why didn't you consult with Congress? Panetta flat out said openly, right in, right in public, and I've seen it on, 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 on YouTube, he said, well, we don't have to do that because we answer to uh, you know, the NATO United line. Nations. We answer, yeah, we answer to other people. That's where the authority lies for military uh, activity. And that is absolutely not only unconstitutional, but it, it certainly is impeachable. I would definitely, I am definitely with you on that. I don't know if he bombed Libya because he wanted to help Al Qaeda. I think that's a stretch. But whatever reason, well, he did it, no. Uh, what I'm saying is, is he knew. They knew. Not only he. You know, the, the British and French were in this as well. They needed sure. him, right? As they needed a British tool in the White House in order to have the military hardware, because we're the only ones right. that have it. Well, why right? would the British uh, and the French want to get al-Qaeda into Libya, for God's sakes? I mean, not, not to mention the, British, the United States. The, 
it's a it's a broader question. It's not mm. Al Qaeda in Libya per se. It's a question of trying to smash any national sovereignty as a concept and a reality internationally mm-hmm. in the face of the fact that the global financial system dominated by British imperial financial interests, a British right. financial oligarchy associated with the monarchy, is in very big trouble. I mean, they're they're bankrupt as hell. They can only continue to maintain their power by suppressing any kind of national resistance. Because if you have a national government that's actually responsible to its people, people are not going to go through the kind of austerity that is otherwise demanded. I mean, this British imperial entity is a very has a long pedigree. Um, it, you know, it, it actually. No, I know that this is a divide and conquer that goes all the way back. I mean, they certainly messed things up in 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 Israel Palestine, and they messed things up with India. I mean, going way back, right. they've they've been involved with this sort of this real politique, this idea of um, you know because it's a it's not a actual physically a strong country. The way they could maintain this vast colonial empire was to uh, make people you know to generate hatreds between groups and pit them against each other so that they could maintain overall control. And I think that's something that's that's pretty standard. And one history. way you do that is by is by deploying terrorists, right? One way you maintain instability so that your financial power continues to exist. But why would you know, they take on uh, first of all, why would they take on Muammar Gaddafi, who is not exactly well? Gaddafi was, was supposed to be a first step. Uh, uh, he was supposed to be an example. I mean, there were probably a number of reasons why he first. But you know it's a small country, et cetera, et cetera. I, I mean, I have a number of speculations, but mm-hmm. but it was clear from what, everything that was going on at the time that what would happen that the next step was intended to be Syria, and the next step after that was intended to be Iran, and that the sure. ultimate target here is the concept and protection of national sovereignty by the only powers on this planet who are prepared to fight to the death for it, which is Russia and China. They're the only powers. I mean, now the United States should, if it had a patriotic president, (laughs) Mm. be prepared to fight to the death for its national sovereignty. But we've seen our own citizens really lose their sense of connection to that concept, right? No, look, I mean, I want to talk about the domestic scene and about Obama, but I just want to comment on what what you're saying about the Middle East, it seems to me that a a figure like Gaddafi and and Bashar Assad, these are not examples of of good national sovereignty. I mean, they're they're total dictators. They're communists. They're they're utterly controlling their countries. You know, there's no, you know, if if that's what... But that's not why they're being opposed. Saudi Arabia is more of dictators than they are. I agree with that, too. We're all for them. if that's an example of national sovereignty, I mean that's uh, you know why you know, that's not that's not and, and Iran as well. I mean these are countries that are terribly uh, oppressive and, and totalitarian states. I mean I would hope that Libya is is eventually going to find a better footing than 
than they did under Gaddafi. I mean, I don't know. I would uh, hope so. I would hope so too. But it's not going to happen by smashing the any government structure it has and letting loose a tribal situation which everybody knew existed. In fact, you know, Secretary of Defense Gates opposed this war, mm-hmm. and he left early because he was outvoted uh, on the uh, the uh, pursuit of this war. Okay. Uh, Senator Webb of Virginia said, you know, we don't know who we're supporting in the opposition to Gaddafi. You know, we just are deciding that we are going to go in and and contrary to the lies of the administration, which said that we're not really waging war because we're not putting boots on the ground, which was the lie from the State That's Department. Absurd, of and I've yeah. always, I, I find it very strange that um, Obama did get involved in that war. And to add to that weirdness, uh, the fact that he did it without any congressional oversight, it is a, it is clearly an impeachable offense. I mean, that's that's clear. Whether or not they're complicit in the murder of our ambassador and three other Americans, they, they are, but not because they wanted them murdered, I don't think. I think it's just because they cut back on security, which was stupid and which was basically insane. But yet... Uh, well, I don't know whether they... A, Go ahead. I mean, it's much more an example of ineptness than it is that they just hung them out there to be murdered, I think. Well, I think, sir, I mean, there's an awful lot that points to... I'm not saying Obama personally thought this guy should be murdered. I doubt that's the case. Uh, uh, Even though he personally rules on murdering lots of other people, mostly nameless, uh, on a weekly basis, which I think is also an impeachable offense. In fact, it's a war crime, even according to the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Killings, to run right. drone strikes on rescue operations after you've done a drone strike. You know, uh, yeah. But anyway, we could get into that whole matter. Right. But there's a pattern here, right? You can't deal everything with everything as particulars. There's a pattern, there's a mindset, there's an intention to say, I don't have to, I don't have to live by the Constitution. But in the case of the uh, situation in Libya, the evidence just continues to pile up that there was an enormous danger of the there being an attack, in fact, on almost any, every embassy in the world around the time of 9-11, as there usually is, right? There was sure. a report in the Briti- British Independent that uh, there was a special alert two days before There was an alert put out by the State Department, a travel advisory on August 27th, which is two weeks before. And now there's evidence there was a specific warning and call to arms by Zawahiri of al-Qaeda before this happened and to revenge al-Libi. And there was a... uh, uh, the security in place was allegedly unarmed, from what mm-hmm. we've been told so far, and was being run by a security, an outsourced security group called Blue Mountain Group, which is a British firm, never having been vetted, and uh, close to, which pr- brags of its connection to SAS. So it's an intelligence 
operation. Well, even the ambassador and, himself and, has sent warnings. And the ambassador okay. himself, according to what we've been told, I mean, we haven't yeah. seen the evidence, and in his uh, letter, diary, is saying, you know, I'm under threat, I'm on an Al-Qaeda hit list. Sure. And, of course, that, you know, so it all adds up to a kind of negligence that you you undoubtedly are very aware of in terms of the pre-9-11 situation, where there were it, yes, it does. warnings I given that, at meetings that said something's going to happen, and it was not paid attention to either because people were fixated on going to war with Iraq, right, or they just didn't want to hear it. Oh, Iran. But, no, I, I, look, I think that um, the Obama administration, is, from what I can tell, they, they, there's nothing positive in this for them. Uh, they should have known that uh, security had to be tightened at ni- on 9/11, not only at the embassies but even here domestically, because it's a day sure. of mischief. The uh, the Al Qaeda network and the terrorists they seem to be gravitating toward uh, big, splashy terrorist events at big sites on on such anniversaries, uh, and that, that's kind of a given. And it's a disgrace that it wasn't. But um, and, and I think that there was a cover-up in the aftermath with this whole business about blaming this weird movie and, and that, which is really not plausible. If anything, it probably fanned the flames of anti-American feeling in many Muslim and Arab capitals. But, I mean, the uh, president of Libya has said three times, you know, yes. and <laughs> what's going on. So uh, at a certain point, you cross the line as to what is just ineptness and what makes i mean impeachment uh chuck is the is not actually despite the fact that i would argue that obama has committed many crimes impeachment is not a criminal proceeding it's to pre- prevent it's it's uh to prevent danger and damage and irreparable damage to the american people sure no it's to, it's to part remove of the constitution them. and it's a uh... It keeps uh, it's a check and a balance on fiat power by the executive branch. That that that's quite clear. I mean, I I, t- I totally agree with that. Is there uh, are your impeachment articles uh, or your articles of impeachment uh, being presented at present time by anyone in Congress? What? Uh, no, there have been. What there is? Have you heard of HCR 107? No. House Concurrent Resolution 107. Well, I would really urge you and everyone who's uh, listening that to go to the LaRouche Pack website and see a video of this. This was a um, this. There was a presentation a week ago today by a number of constitutional military people and a congressman, Congressman Walter Jones, a Republican oh, yes. of North Carolina. And he, in March of this year, put forward House Concurrent Resolution 107, which simply restates the relevant article of the Constitution on the war powers. I mean, he's as much angry at the Congress as he is at the president. But he's saying that, you know, Congress has to take responsibility when we do this. In fact, he's in a military district where he's having to, you know, seeing all these kids die all the time for what he thinks is no good reason. So, and... But the resolution says that if that article is violated by the president going to war, unless there's you know, an obvious response to an attack, but going to war without 
the approval of Congress, it's an immediate impeachable offense. That's the closest we've come right. to something on the floor of the Congress for this. This has 12 co-sponsors, three Democrats, the rest Republicans. Um, and it's what happened last Friday was a presentation which brought some high-level military people, uh, the former uh, chief of staff of Colin Powell, a former head of CENTCOM, Joseph Hoare, General Joseph Hoare, Bruce Fine, a constitutional lawyer, who also wrote uh, impeachment articles for Bush and Cheney. Sure. Um, So he's not, he's Republican aligned, you would say, but he is an equal opportunity defender of the Constitution. Impeacher, yeah. So, uh, So this is... Uh, and the picture they put together in terms of the way in which the executive power has been expanded and the abdication of Congress is really must-watching. It's also on YouTube, this particular mm-hmm. right. um, uh, uh, press conference, only about an hour. Uh, but people really should go to LaRouche Pack, and they can also call, if it's okay with you, I'd give the I number to call, call LaRouche Pack. Uh, to get involved in our mobile, we're still mobilizing for this. We're mobilizing for this. We're mobile as one avenue for potential <clears throat> impeachment of the president, um, as well as behind other initiatives that people might take. The um, you know we've looked very much at the Nixon president precedent, excuse yes. me, uh, mm-hmm. which of course did not involve an actual impeachment. But uh, him being told in no uncertain terms he better get out of there or he was going to uh, be uh, tarred. Yeah, exactly. Which I, think was a, I think that was a coup. But um, certainly, I mean. Well, it, it was in a certain way, but it was also uh, the better part of valor on his part because he would have been impeached. Right, um, I know that. But the, the point is, I, I don't. I don't think there was really ultimately grounds for it, and I, I think he was driven out of office. But um, and Clinton also. Anyway, the number, the number, one eight hundred, one eight hundred nine two nine seven five six six. That's that's the Larouche Political Action Committee. That's our. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm in the you know uh, so-called literary arm, the weekly yes. news magazine, Executive Intelligence Review. Uh, but you know I also am very active in the political arm, which is LaRouche, the Larouche Political Action Committee. Um, which is where if people really want to move. And I, I tell you, Chuck, we are picking up an enormous amount of support, sure. particularly in the in areas with a lot of military and government people. Um, now, uh, Nancy, are, how, can people, how can people get EIR? They can go on the uh, www.larouchepub.com website mm-hmm. and subscribe. No problem. We is that, also is, have that a, special, is that a monthly or how does that come out? No, it's a weekly. It's a weekly. Really? Uh, we we come out only online, unfortunately, at this point. Uh, but we send it out. It's anywhere from forty to seventy pages per week, uh, jam packed with uh, economic analysis, uh, his, history, um, and the strategic situation. Um, mm-hmm. We're not. We're very much. We've been in existence since 1974, 
right. and um, have a lot of circulation in international capitals as well as the United States. We're really missing. Well, I, I recently <laughs> read, I read uh, the book uh, by Anton Chatkin. I was very impressed. Uh, treason Which in America. Which one, the Bush book or Treason uh, in America? Yeah. Yes, Treason in America. As sort of a, uh, I like to think of myself as a historian, but uh, you know, an armchair historian. I, I really thought he did a very good job of of um, revealing and exposing aspects of American history that are not known conventionally, and uh, right. I, I really appreciated that. And uh, I'm looking forward to um, <clears throat> to looking at EIR as a resource for this program. Oh, I think you uh, find it useful. Yep. And, and also, uh, I've I've written a book on American history. Also, I've got uh, it's mostly an introduction to uh, excerpts uh, in the political economy of the American Revolution. That's available in a PDF on the, the website. Also. Great. Send it to me. We could do another program. I'm very interested, particularly in economic history and. Political history. Now, uh, what is, is Lyndon LaRouche a candidate for the presidency this time? No, he is not. He just turned ninety. He's okay. Considers himself too old for that. Uh, but he's extremely active politically, uh, and we have a movement of younger people and uh, and those of us who've been around since the late 1960s. So um, we are, uh, and we're. We operate internationally, but he's extremely active in terms of strategy and to trying to develop the economic and political thrust that could actually get us out of what he sees as not only the the deepening of this global depression that we're in, and it really is a depression. And why they call it the Great Recession is only because no one wants to call it a depression. <laughs> right, they don't like the word. It's a marketing thing. Yeah. And, and I'd uh, like to do some talk on, on the nature of our monetary system and what is the best monetary system for a sovereign nation. Uh, that's something that uh, I think Chad can touches on in his book, the issue of the national bank. Yeah, we we and, could and get into that. that in an in another show. In another I think. time. But there's Absolutely. one one other aspect that that uh, Mr. Lewis is concentrating on, and that really goes together with what we're discussing on the Obama nine nine one one Libya question, which is this aspect that I went through on why Libya of the confrontation mm. with Russia and China. I mean, right, if you're going to look at if you're going to look at EIR, the first thing I would recommend that you look at, and this is, we have a few public articles that don't require a subscription, and then mm-hmm. some of the others do, but in the current issue which is up there, which uh, among the articles that does not require a subscription, is one on that goes through uh, that is fairly broad on the current state of of military threat between the the U.S. and Russia in particular. Um, It's uh, between that and this uh, also highly relevant press conference that we have the full transcript of in the EIR, um, get a very good sense of what the actual situation is. Because the problem is that Obama in our view, acts as a tool of this British financial oligarchy. 
You know, he has his own he has his own problems, he has his own personality which is, you know, veers toward what what Mr. LaRouche calls an, an Emperor Nero type personality. You know, someone who wants to exercise power for the sake of exercising power, extreme mm-hmm. narcissism. But the uh but he has a but the British wanted him in there. We know that from historically. I can't go through all that before and uh, right now. And he functions as their geopolitical tool. And so despite all the promises, again, on the reset, that this, that that, we're going to collaborate, you know, we are headed toward confrontation on the national sovereignty issue with Russia and China in a way that's totally unnecessary. There's no expansionary effort going on from there. There is, and the uh, if you look at this, particular article, uh, you'll get a sense. So Mr. LaRouche's view is, look, you know, Obama working effectively for these British financial interests is pushing a confrontation. He doesn't want a thermonuclear war, right? Mm -hmm. Which is where it would end up if we had a real confrontation. That's the only kind of real war you would have uh, these days. Uh, he doesn't want it. He wants them to back down to the idea of, you know, Understood. regime right. change. Regime change can be decided by the United Nations, you know. Although I think that so, Obama has made noises with uh, his meeting with the uh, the Russian prime minister about cooperating with Russia after the election. And also, there's an interesting article in World Net Daily, which published one of my books, that uh, indicates that Obama had Saudi a Saudi, uh, Saudi funding to to pay for his college education, uh, but yeah, that um, was quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I want to ask you: do, do you take a position on, or do you personally have an opinion about uh, candidate Mitt Romney? I don't think he's qualified to be president. I don't think Obama's qualified to be president. I'm the, the, as a political movement, we are not supporting the president sure. either of these candidates we are in fact we think the partisan political system was never intended by the founding fathers <laughs> and right. that it that the party system itself uh has really befuddled people's brains i mean everybody knows it people go from voting against this can this party to voting against the other party you know from election to election it's like reaction formation you know there's no policy discussed for the most part it's a team sport right mm-hmm. and this is disgusting and it's led us down to a degeneration of our economy i mean we've basically degenerated economically culturally and in sense of responsibility for ourselves and the world over the since Kennedy's assassination. Um really. Uh that's right. lawful for lots of reasons. But, you know, it's uh, so Romney he's he's unqualified. Uh in Do you think he's connected to any of these people we're talking about here or these groups? He may be. I mean he has very ta- very big um British financial connections and he of course he's in the Mormon church which itself is uh not what you call a democratic institution and itself has uh its own british intelligence connections but 
but you don't know how those things would really function. You know, you know that lots of people who enter the presidency, I mean, look at, you know, in our view, John F. Kennedy would have been a great president if he hadn't been assassinated. Not that everything he did was right or that he came in thinking it right, right? But people do adjust to the presidency in a certain way in terms of their own sense of responsibility for the nation. And some people can grow in the presidency, you know, sure. beyond what their pedigree was uh, when they actually got in there. So you can't right. do everything from pedigree. Uh, but in fact, you see, but the fact that we are in the kind of crisis we're in, the kind of economic, you know, really existential economic crisis, I mean, our food supply globally is is in big, big trouble. Chuck, (laughs) you know, because we haven't done anything to provide water in areas that need it. We haven't done the water projects and so forth. And you know, it's it's just uh, we're we have no reserves anymore by design, Mm -hmm. and people are going to starve to death. And unfortunately, it's the case that there's a whole green movement out there, you know which ultimately does also go back to the British monarchy, that thinks that's not a bad idea. We don't want to have a lot of people on the planet. You know, some of them have even I, said know, we I, want to I go... Just, I just interviewed an author of a book called Merchants of Despair. Um, it's uh-huh. in the right now that he talks about the history of this movement going back to the British uh, theorist uh, Malthus and, right. and Darwin and, and all of that and how they... They were into this concept of scarcity that, that that there was something good about restricting the use of you of of resources of, of our, on our planet as a way and, and kind of this elitist attitude that that would lead and has led to starvation and and war um, and uh, you know it's a, it's an interesting history there uh, Nancy I, I'm reaching the end of the segment I want you once again to let people know how they can uh, take a look at EIR and how they can look at how they can get in touch with you. Okay, thanks. Um, people can join us in the movement to get rid of Obama before he gets us into a global war and uh, by calling 1-800-929-7566. That's 800-929-7566. That's at LaRouche Political Action Committee. And they can get on either the LaRouche PAC website, which will give you videos and lots of of background or the EIR website which goes under the name of larouchepub.com l a r o u c h e p u b.com and there yes, you can find thank, thank you I'm sorry thank you Chuck thanks for joining me we shall return please stay tuned <laughs> Three two seven nine eight four nine is the number. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. Samantha Clemens is coming up in the uh, in hour number two. She is a so-called progressive talk show host, 
formerly with Revolution Radio here in Boston. Um, she will be discussing, among other issues, uh, what it is to do a blog talk radio program. Um, the uh, and the election of 2012. We'll talk a little bit about a little politics. Um, Revolution Radio recently uh, went off the air and was replaced by Sports Talk, which, um, I mean, I don't get that. I mean, I suppose, how commercial can that be? I mean, how many sports talkers can you have in a city? I mean, even though I'm not uh, in agreement with the so-called progressives um, in that I don't believe what they're about is progressive, nevertheless, you know, it's a terrible loss. You know, I listened to uh, Jeff Santos and I listened to uh, Samantha Clemens on the weekend. And Samantha, by the way, I consider kind of a colleague of mine in that she also started up, started out at WMFO at Tufts University, um, as did I. Um, and that, uh, but to have them all taken off the air like that in one fell swoop is a loss. It, it means less communication, less talk. Rush, Rush Radio also was suddenly swept off the air. Uh, you know, it's just odd, rather odd to me that, that that's what's happening. Swept away, replaced with um, syndicated um, talk. In fact, in the case of Rush Radio, it's even worse than sports talk. It's this um, this laugh track that they keep running, and it's 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 awful. It's with due respect, you know. Come on, it's. Uh, I, I don't mind having maybe one show that deals with comedy. I like comedy. I mean, I could use a laugh as much as the next guy. But uh, this whole idea of um, just all day, you know, this laugh track, awful, awful. Anyway, um, Samantha will be up with us uh, in our number two. Uh, let's take a look at the Drudge Report. There's information now that's uh, coming out. I wish this was a bigger story, but it's not. Uh, yesterday we had the video of a woman in um, – in Ohio saying, Obama has my vote, he gave me a free telephone. That the Obama campaign or someone was handing out free telephones. Now it turns out that there's another video up, and this is on the Drudge Report. The SEIU, which is very close to the Obama administration, and which also was intertwined at a lot of different levels with the former group known as ACORN, um, they are paying protesters at a Romney rally. In Cleveland, 11 bucks an hour. You know, it's like they're hiring labor. They're hiring, um, they're sending out their workers. I don't know if it's, um, you know, SEIU employees who are taking a day off or what, but they're going out there and they're protesting, and they're paid. I mean, these are paid hacks. You know, to my way of thinking, this is a big story, but uh, we'll see. Um, I think that we're set up, and I think it's already happening in my opinion, for a huge national scandal around the issue of voter fraud. Um, you know, this uh, this, this uh, Brenner Institute, which is this phony, highbrow legal group that, is, that got a $6.5 million check from George Soros to help them get started, has floated this phony accusation that states that are concerned with um, voter ID somehow have something against African-American men and women, which, by the way, in and of itself is racist. This idea that African-American men and women don't have proper registration, that's hogwash. 
people who don't have proper registration, whether they be black, white, or whatever, are probably people who would be the least likely to vote. You know, they've got bigger problems. You know, so, I mean, this idea that anybody would be denied the right to vote, I'm sure you could probably find a few anecdotal situations. It's ridiculous, but what it's doing is it's setting up a situation where if it looks like Obama might lose, they're going to come in and start screaming about voter suppression, and they're going to try to, at the same time, in my opinion, stuff the ballot box. The SC, you know, ACORN was defanged last year when they were exposed in a sting operation, and the government, including the Obama administration, had to cut off um, their contracts worth tens of millions of dollars to various of the many, many ACORN subsidiaries. But uh, SEIU is still there. They're kind of the unofficial ACORN. They were very closely allied with ACORN, shared a building with ACORN, uh, a headquarters in Louisiana. I mean, this is a very close association on all levels. And it looks like the SEIU is picking up the slack. They're going to be engaging in the voter fraud, which, of course, ACORN has been doing since uh, the 1980s in every major election in different states and where they've been hired by Democratic politicians to, quote, get out the vote, unquote, which is kind of a euphemistic for whatever it takes, you know, to get out the vote, the so-called vote. Um, So what I think is happening is that um, we have here a very determined, very insistent left that wants to and insists upon holding on to power at any cost that feels it's right, it's moral, it's appropriate, it's ethical to take any measure necessary to to achieve that end because they believe so much in their radical cause and they understand that Barack Obama is one of them uh, regardless of his public posturing, even though they might say oh yes, we don't like Obama he's too conservative, that's that's interesting, you know, he listens to the tone when they say it, it's a complete fabrication a complete lie uh they they will do anything they can to get him in there and if he does get in it's going to be a four years as a lame duck president where he will not he will never have to stand for another election and he will then have an enormous uh, increase in fiat power um this is um oh look at this there's a poll out that says obama's jewish support is 65 percent that is fabulous because um, his support in the Jewish community traditionally has been more closer to 85%, 90%. That is a fantastic development. Oh, my God, that is amazing. Let me see this article. Now, this is from the Jerusalem Post, which is a pretty liberal kind of you know mainstream paper out there. Polls show 65% of Jews support Obama. Yeah, but that's terrible. <laughs> I mean, you think because given the fact that he previously had about 90, Israel comes in at a distant fourth among issues that respondents list as most important to them in US presidential election. A new American Jewish Committee poll found 65% of Jews nationwide planning to vote for Obama versus 24% for Mitt Romney with another 10% undecided. Now, that might not look good to by conventional viewers, but that's actually huge in terms of a shift away from Obama. You know, it shows that some of my fellow religionists maybe are even waking up. Anyway, on that note, we're going to take a break. We're going to be back with my next guest. 
That being Samantha Clemens, progressive talk show host, um, please stay tuned. Uh, We shall return after these messages. Friday noon to 2 p.m. The number to reach us, of course, if you'd like to join the conversation, is 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. You can email me at chuckmorse4 at gmail.com. I'd like to welcome aboard our producing station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network. And I believe we have Samantha Clemens on the line. Samantha, are you there? I am. Thanks for joining me, Samantha. It's and great to uh, be here. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Samantha is the former host of her own program on Revolution Radio in Boston. Uh, also, by the way, Samantha, a former uh, talk show host at WMFO, which I was as well. Well, I think it's a great place to, um, to, to, to get started, although I have to say I actually started on the radio on WRKO with Todd Feinberg. Um, you did. So I, was a regular, I was a regular guest of his. I didn't host a show, but I was a regular guest for about six months, which is how I got the addiction that I now must feed. <laughs> it's a disease. <laughs> that and I, I cannot I, stop. <laughs> I, I, I know. It's, I've been on with Todd also, and it's, and he's he's great. And um, you know, it's 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 like a disease. Talk radio. There's something about it. It's. Um, I mean, I can tell you. Like I started, but before I went to WMFO. Uh, my job required me do required a lot of time in the car. I did deliveries all over New England, and um, you know you're out there for hour after hour driving. And I just uh, fell in love with talk radio, you know, and just began to, uh, especially Jerry Williams. You talk about WRKO. He was the greatest. Do you remember him? Yeah, I'm a bit, well, I'm actually, a bit was, older than you. <laughs> yeah, well, he was before I moved to Boston. I moved here many years ago, but. Um, yeah, no, actually, it's funny because I actually grew up, I was an NPR girl and um, really did not um, listen to AM radio. In fact, when I first um, started on the air with Todd, I had to go find an AM radio. I didn't even have one in my house. Right, right. And, yeah, and so then, and it was literally then that I started listening to talk radio, including conservative talk radio. And to be honest, Chuck, 
I couldn't believe what I was hearing. <laughs> I was right. Stunned. No, it's a, it, I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. Um, and so I started listening all the time because I really wanted to understand how it is that people like you come to the conclusions that you come to because I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> so it well, was you know, really I mean, a and speaking process. of NPR, I mean, I used to, I also like NPR, and I used to listen to um, Chris Lydon. I don't know if you remember him. Sure, of course. Yep. Yeah, I mean, he was great, and um, he was driven off the air for various reasons. That's another story. But, yeah. um, you know, there's something about talk radio that, I, you know, the thing that attracted me was that I found that the regular man, John and Jane off the street, had enormous wisdom and sometimes much more sensibility than these sort of smart asses that write for the um, the Globe and, you know, these these official opinion makers. And, and that always struck me as, as amazing. Well, I like the interaction. I like the conversation. I think it's um, I think it's really fun. But I also like being challenged by people I disagree with because that makes you really instead of just only talking with people you agree with, you really can't focus in on why do you believe what you believe unless you're talking with someone that you disagree with. And I think that discipline is good for all of us. That's why I think we all need to get out of our little cocoons and go talk to people that we disagree with. No, I entirely agree. I mean, and with talk radio, I've always viewed it, uh, and I've been very dedicated to it over many, many years. I've been on more stations than I care to admit, <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, but with various things going on. But uh, I've I've stayed in it. I'm still in it, and. Um, yeah, there's like a debugging process that that I've undergone. I think that most talk show hosts experience, in that uh, a lot of the received wisdom that we we've been spoon fed and conditioned to accept from our youth, uh, you know, as you examine it and as you look at the different sides, you realize that there's something else going on. That there's much more nuance to much of the uh, things that we conventionally think about. That's exactly right, and that's why I I grew up in a conservative household, and um, when I grew, grew up and went away, I learned that a lot of that was wrong. <laughs> well, uh, gee, I'd like to talk with you about how you became uh, a, a woman of the left, but um, I, I hope you don't mind if I ask, and this is, uh, you know, we, we can discuss this here because um, this is my platform. I, I was a fan of Revolution Radio, even though I did not agree with uh, much of what was going on there, especially with uh, Jeff Santos, who often had me yelling and screaming at the radio in the morning. But yeah. yet it gave me a pretty good sense of what the left was thinking that day. And, of course, my co-host was a man of the left at the time. So I yeah. could almost predict with, with, with carbon copy exactness what he would be talking about later the day. So I viewed Jeff as sort of a show prep for me. Uh, but uh, but what happened? I mean, the, the station went all sports. Well, as, as as not surprising now, Jeff is still on the air in a number of other stations around um, the country. So right. he's still on. His team is still producing the show and so forth. It was just the station here in Boston um, that mm-hmm. um, was the problem. And you know, I I don't go through the books. He didn't sit down with me and tell me all the reasons why. But I think it was the the, the business relationship between him and the people who own the station. And ultimately, they couldn't come to terms. And so he. He had to say, okay, I'm moving on. So I think that's ultimately what it came down to. But they to. swept away all of the uh, 
liberal talk show hosts. I mean, you know, Stephanie Miller and 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 um, and Tom Hartman. By the way, Tom Hartman used to have me on occasionally, and he got so many complaints from people whenever I'd come on that he had to stop. Just because they were well, like, "What are you doing with that right wing, you know, guy?" <laughs> but uh, but what ha- but, but but it looks like everyone was swept off, and I think that again, even though I may not agree with the politics, it's a terrible loss. It's like the voice has been silenced in Boston, and uh, the same thing I'm sure you might note has happened with Rush Radio, swept away in a minute, gone. It is, and ultimately, yeah. it comes down to money. You know, that's what it comes down to. And, you know, this is a business that's driven by, you know, ad revenue. And so the the business model has to make sense. And let's face it, I mean, under communism in Russia, it was classical music and sports. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's what it was. Everything was school-fed. No, and and I think that there is a problem with radio stations. They can save a buck by, by basically syndicating a program that that comes to them for practically nothing, and that's just they pick up off the satellite, and uh, it's a lot it's a lot easier and cheaper and safer and neater than having somebody come on down and do a live show. And uh, it's just a you know I don't know if that's a trend in the business. I've been hearing for years people say that talk radio is dead in terms of uh, people like us, local talk show hosts, and that everything is going to go to this autom- automatic uh, phenomena. Uh, is that? Do you think that's the case, uh, Samantha? Well, I think first of all, everything is going to the internet um, with handheld devices. I think we're going to be streaming live shows and listening to podcasts. I think that's the um, direction of the future. I already listen to a lot of radio on my um, on my um, device, and I literally carry it around with me in my house as I'm getting ready in the morning. So I carry it into the bathroom, and I carry it back into right, sure. my room now, while Samantha, I'm getting dressed. Let me just uh, quickly introduce uh, our affiliate stations. We still have some good old-fashioned radio stations for this show. Uh, okay. You're listening to Chuck Worth Speaks. I'd like to welcome aboard WWPR AM in Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. Of course, our host station is Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Our online partners is Blog Talk Radio. And now you can hear us on Stitches, which is a free app that you can download the program and listen to it in your cell phone anywhere in the world. Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849, My guest this segment is Samantha Clemens. She is a progressive talk show host. We're talking a little bit about the business of talk radio. We might get into the election. Uh, right now, Samantha, you're, you've, you've noted that you, um, you've taken to listening to uh, uh podcasts, and also uh, online streaming programs. Um, Yeah, I listen to it all, you know, um, terrestrial, online, podcasts, whatever makes the most sense at the time. Now, uh, are there any particular uh, stations that that you go to uh, to hear podcasts or to hear live stream? Well, for podcasts, I actually subscribe to a lot of things on iTunes. Mm -hmm. So I have everything from... 
um, um, this um, Dan Carlin's um, history class that, you know, all the stuff that you missed in history, and he's just such a wonderful storyteller and has a great way of teaching us all the stuff that we forgot since high school. Mm -hmm. Everything to that, to podcasts of, you know, shows here in the Boston area. Um, I listen to Boston area um, um, radio streamed on my device. So it just, just, a, a huge um, array of things. Um, the Moth Podcast, I love listening to that. Um, people getting up and telling live stories that you listen to later, or any. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. I have I have a couple of um, podcasts that are a tune a day, and so I mm-hmm. get a new little tune of music every single day that I listen to, and I don't like probably eighty percent of it, but twenty percent of it I like. <laughs> sure, it's a, it's a hit or a miss. Uh, Samantha, you're you're looking at you're in the same dilemma the rest of us are in in terms of um, how to develop a a radio talk show to keep your habit, <laughs> which we all have in this business. Um, I, I'm on both uh, conventional radio stations, but I'm also trying to build my um, my online uh, platform, both through CyberStation and Blog Talk. Um, are you looking to um, <clears throat> launch your own program online? Um, I am. I'm looking at all options. I mean, I was last on the air in um, in late July, mid-July, and I already had vacation plans for August, so I decided I'm just going to take advantage of the change in schedule and kind of chill out for a while. And now I am. I'm looking at a variety of things. Um, I would love to be on all platforms. Um, so online, on the air, um, um, terrestrial, you name it. But I do, I really do think that ultimately, long term, it's going to be, you know, a lot of radio is going to be streaming. But they're still going to have the equipment. I mean, they're still going to have the airwaves. Right. They're still going to have the towers. And so it's a question of what's going to be on the AM dial, the FM dial, and so forth. And what most people think is that, you know, AM talk is going to be on AM the longest. And then, you know, who knows what's going to happen to those AM dials, and then it's going to be FM. But I think it's going to be a lot of really local stuff, really hyper-local stuff, because we're always going to need that. You know, I think that there's a great advantage to, um, excuse me, to to doing the the online show, even when it's picked up by stations, because it really becomes your own domain. You have a lot of control over what you do. There isn't a... uh, you know, a, a, a manager watching, and I've had situations at conventional radio stations like that where I've had people push me to say this and not that. And, um, you know, you actually have the full control to develop uh, your own your own promotions, your own publicity, you build your own audience. I mean, there's, there's a great advantage to that, and um, I urge you to do it. I mean, you could get in touch with uh, CyberStation, for one thing, and Quincy. They're great. All right. And, well, and also I, Blog Talk Radio is great. Yeah, well, I welcome all leads on that, but I wanted to circle back and say one thing, which is yep. I was never, ever told one way or the other the entire time I was on um, Revolution Boston 1510 anything about what I can and cannot say. In I fact, like um, Jeff Santos, who's the guy, specifically said to me, I'm never going to tell you what you can and cannot say on the air. Well, Even when Samantha, he disagreed. I, mean, there I understand, things, but you know, I... I I would just point out with with a little bit of um, speculation here that if you started to talk about conservative causes, that that might you might have found that something else could happen. Not that they would tell you what to say, but 
you know, suddenly some some axe falls somewhere in the <laughs> at night. Let's just well, put it that way. Well, you have to fit in with the format. I mean, if I started playing, you know, Irish music, they probably would have said, we don't yeah. want well, that. If you, on if you start to talk about how wonderful Mitt Romney was, you, you might end up, you know what I mean? Well, Anyways, I'm, just, I, I only, I'm gently suggesting that, that you didn't have that problem because you were in the right uh, political genre there, which is fine because uh, that's what they're about. But, yeah. I mean, I, I can just you know, tell you, again, in terms of um, when I was on with Tom Hartman, he wanted to do some left-right talk, and he, he had trouble with having me on. I mean, people were angry at stations that were angry, and he, he could no longer do it. So yeah. maybe this is a, a snapshot in terms of how polarizing um, things have gotten on the air. And, uh, you know, I just uh, finished up a pretty lengthy gig with um, – a liberal co-host, that being Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, and uh, it just got to be, you know, unreasonable after a while. We we basically parted company. Yeah, now, I actually read a little bit about that, and you know, it gets really tough. But you know what it is, though. People care about these issues, and when people they do. care, you can. I mean, you can say, well, you let your emotions get away with you, but on the other hand, they're emotional because they matter. And and, and a lot of times people vehemently disagree with someone and they stake and they feel the stakes are really, really high because in some cases people's lives depend on it. And that's why it gets very, very hard. And that's why it's hard for Congress, you know, to make decisions. That's why it's hard to co host a show. I mean, when I was on the air with Todd, I mean, you know, there were times when we were angry with each other. Right. <laughs> I was right. Just like, and you know, you I know, I mean I actually have come to to the thinking that um there's not anything necessarily wrong with that. I mean, you know, I am doing a more conservative program now that I'm flying solo, but I still have liberals on, but it's predominantly conservative, and I think that my former co-host is doing a liberal program. In a sense, uh, you know, the, the, you are dealing with issues that people believe are important and uh, that, that they think it is a life-and-death thing, thing sometimes, and that they do want to hear, you know, those issues developed. It's not – you don't have to have – the opposition come in, except occasionally, to to try to. But once in a while, I think it is healthy, only in that it does actually result in more, uh, a little bit more of a broadening of the thinking, and um, it sparks some more insights. I mean, I, I, I always have had uh, people on the left, for example, on my program, including I did a series with Noam Chomsky many years ago, so um, and and the late Howard Zinn. Uh, well, so, good for you. you. Know, yeah, I mean, and I think it's an. To my way of thinking, it uh, it clarified my thinking in many ways, and I also found that there were certain areas that I resonated with them. And you know, I I found that uh, you know it wasn't necessarily an oppositional uh, sort of experience at all. Well, I I think that it, again, it forces. I, I I hope that it forces both of you to really think about why do you believe what you believe and how do you back it up and how do you communicate in a way that resonates with people who are listening who also disagree with you that for me is what i loved about being on wrko because every time you're on the air there are probably if 10,000 people are listening then there are probably 500 that know more about whatever topic you're talking about than you do <laughs> that's right and it's a great learning experience Anyway, we're going to take a brief break. My guest is Samantha Clemens. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned. 
And we are back, 347-327-9849. Chuck Morse hosting Chuck Morse Speaks. You're welcome to join the program, 347-327-9849. My guest this segment, Samantha Clemens. She's a progressive radio talk show host. Um, Samantha, let's go right to some political issues. Sure. What say you with uh, just uh, five weeks left till the election? Uh, should uh, does Barack Obama deserve to be elected to a second term in the presidency? And if so, I, why? I think so. I think that honestly, he's done an amazing job of navigating um, what our what our country and in fact the global economic system has gone through in the last four years. Um, he's definitely a centrist. So obviously, um, people on the right. Um, think that he's a crazy socialist, and people on the left think that he's not done any of the things that they consider to be really, really important. And my feeling is that if both sides are mad at him, he's probably threading the needle um, as, as, as finely as anyone possibly could. Well, you've brought up, of course, I think the central issue of the campaign, which is his uh, handling of um, the American economy. And um, you say that he's done a good job over the past four years in terms of um, dealing with the economy. How so? Because if you compare what's happening in the United States compared to what's happening in Europe, the United States and Europe t took two very different paths to um, respond to the economic crisis that we face. Now, the, the symptoms were very similar. The causes were quite different. In the U.S., it was the financial um, um, meltdown. Um, it was the problem with the, the, the securities based on mortgages. The mortgages were of low value. The securities were sold as being high value. So, there was, so people were investing in these securities without adequate knowledge about what they were investing in, and it all unraveled, right? So that's the problem. Problem there. Um, so in my opinion, there was a combination of um, poor regulation and out-and-out -out fraud in terms of representing what the, you know, what was in the securities that were being bought and sold. So there was that problem. Um, in Europe, it varies by country. Um, in Spain, it was private debt. It was, it, it was debt of corporations. In Greece, it was public debt, and so on and so forth. But they're having their meltdowns. So what's the difference between the United States and what's happening in Europe? Europe took the plan of austerity. They mm -hmm. said, we're going to slash budgets, we're going to slash taxes, and we're just going to um, um, bring all the numbers down in order to reduce the debt. That's our highest priority. Whereas in the United States, we, um, we, we had the stimulus plan. So right. we injected more money into the economy. We gave loans to the um, auto industry in order to prevent all of those companies from going out of business. And if you compare how the U.S. is doing compared to most of the European countries, we are doing so much better here than what, they, what is going on over there. I mean, they're having riots in the streets. Right. Uh, they have widespread <clears throat> hunger. And you know, ultimately, it's, they took very different paths. And my concern in this country is that what conservatives want to do, what they are calling for, the Romney-Ryan plan, is what they did in Europe. Right. And I think well, it's you know, a description for failure. No, I think that's a, a reasonable position to take. I think that, in a sense, you've identified the problem that I think both the United States and the British or the European uh, economies are dealing with probably much of the world's economy, which is this huge expansion of debt. Um, and that um, 
the Europeans, I don't think it's so much that they chose to engage in austerity. I don't think they had any more ch- – they didn't have much choice because they could not sell any more debt. The debt had become so big that it was no longer sustainable. Uh, Actually, they could no, not that's get- not the case. It, we were in very similar positions, and they've got the European Central Bank. Now, their problem is that they're not a federation like we are. We actually have a federal government. They right. don't. They have Brussels, but obviously they're still completely separate sovereign countries. Sure. And so, and and Germany's refusing to spend the money, which is the role that actually because they don't have a federal government, Germany is kind of the de facto. Well, Germany federal is government. a federal government. Right, and they're not doing it. But I would, I would, look, I would argue that Europe was much further along the path than we were in terms of developing debt. I mean, their big debt, our debt really, I think, started in the late 60s a little bit with Johnson, and then it continued through you know, Nixon and Reagan and all the way up until we've got to the point today where we, we've got this huge $16 trillion debt. Whereas with Europe, I think it, it, it was bigger, it's older, it's, it's less sustainable – and they've reached the point which we could reach if if we don't start to uh, put our house in order. They, I mean, from what I can see, and with the exception of Germany, which has been very austere in their spending all the way since the end of World War II, and they've been very kind of conservative in terms of how they manage their their public expenditures. But we we could go in the direction of some of those you know rather unhealthy economies in Europe if we continue to expand the debt. And, you know, I suppose you know, actually, that... Um, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, actually, Spain had no public debt. They right. didn't have well, any public I, I, debt. It was all private debt. So then the private debt is crashing the economy. Well, that's it, right. debt is debt. I mean, public or private. The point is that there's been a overextension in the ability of either the government or these private companies or individuals to sustain the debt. I think it's probably a combination of both. And in this country, it's, I think there's also huge problems with private debt as well, as we've seen with the mortgage problem. And I think that it's, it, it requires, in a sense, somewhat of a retrenchment on both sides of, of this debt because it's not sustainable. And Barack Obama has admitted that. I mean, he said so during his State of the Union address in 2010. Um, and I think that it, it's not so much a matter of, of austerity in my opinion, if you look, I think that um, Mitt Romney is actually fairly centrist when it comes to this, and he has said so on a couple of occasions. Certainly that's how he was as governor of Massachusetts, in that he's not going to engage in these huge cuts. I think that's something that he's being accused of by, for political reasons. He's going to just slow down some of this huge public spending over a 10-year period and gradually, at the same time, help private investment and help you know, capital accumulation and the development of industry and all of that so that it can start to catch up again and, and, and re, re, regenerate, stimulate the economy in, by private money rather than by the creation of debt. And, and I actually think that it's, it's, um, it's probably, you know, I know that it is more conservative than – the Obama approach, which I think is going to be to have another stimulus borrowing package. But I think that it's probably best in the long run for this country right now. Um, I, You know, if you just look at what's happening, I mean, we, obviously the problem, of course, is that 
we don't have a controlled study, right? We don't have a control group. We can't say, well, let's do, um, you know, what Obama wants to do over here and let's do then what Romney wants to do. Like maybe maybe what we should do is we should split up the country in the red and the blue states and then Romney can do his plan in the red ones and Obama can do <laughs> well, his plan in the blue ones and we'll see who ends up doing better after that. <laughs> I'd love to. You know, in a so sense, only- Samantha, just to interject here, there is a split up of the country into 50 states, and I think we can take a look at the states that have been more, you know, just on the state level, that have been a bit more, more austere in terms of balancing their budgets and that their economies are doing better. And I will suggest to you that those states are states that elected Republican governors. Yeah, that's actually, if you look at the states on a, on, on a net receipts basis in terms of which states are, you know, take more money from the federal government than they put in, they tend to be the red states. Well, yeah, but that's, that's a proportional question. I mean, these are smaller states. So, I mean, yeah, but it's on know, a per capita basis. Per I think the states basis. that take in the biggest amount of money are probably New York and California, and California is asking for a national bailout. I mean, this isn't necessarily under Governor Brown. It was under Arnold Schwarzenegger. They already were talking about that. And they've yeah. got uh, communities in that state that are, are declaring bankruptcy. So, you know, I think that the states that are, are doing better, you know, it's, it's you know, whether or not they, that, them getting federal outlay, I don't know if that even matters that much. I, I think it is, we're talking, in a sense, more on a state and local level. They've made reforms in terms of, attracting business and reducing costs and consolidating and doing some of those sorts of things that, quite frankly, Mitt Romney and um, Governor Bill Weld did here in Massachusetts, um, that I think it's resulted in a little bit more stability in those states. Yeah, well, you know, the thing that's interesting about it is what – which states are doing better and which states are doing worse? I mean, just to backtrack to that a little bit, the states that are doing the worst – are the ones that were the most negatively affected by the um, by the housing crisis, right. and so that and those are the ones that actually had increased the most before the crash, right? So Arizona, um, Nevada, right. and a lot of those other places. So they went up, and then they went, and then the bubble burst, and they went down. So those are the places, you know, and that that are struggling. Um, Detroit would have been a you know a bloodbath if it weren't for um, bailing out GM and the other um, and the auto industry. And even though Ford didn't get any money and they're very proud of that, the way they managed through that, Mm -hmm. I've spoken with people who work at Ford and, you know, management at the, at Ford. And they said that if it weren't for the bailout, they would have gone out of business as well. They didn't need the loans, but they needed their suppliers to be successful. And I agree. I, I credit Barack Obama for that bailout. I think that was the right call. I think. I mean, although there were questions about how much of that bailout actually went to support General Motors overseas, as opposed to here domestically, and there were questions about the Chevy Volt, whether or not that's a viable entity, and whether or whether or not that's how much per car that actually costs the taxpayers in terms of subsidizing it and how much that's adding to the debt. But I do think that the the idea of allowing them to have a managed bankruptcy would have been bad, and uh, that would have hurt uh, more of the uh, not just General Motors but all of the subsidiary companies that depend on, on the automobile industry, and that would have been a bad idea. So I credit him for that. I mean, I think that was the right call. But um, – 
you know, it just common ground, most, Chuck. Common ground. Yeah, yeah you bet. <laughs> but 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 most of the stimulus package went to supporting state governments, and those state governments, I believe, and this is where I I come in as rather conservative. They could have trimmed back some of their costs without affecting teachers and firefighters and police and, and others. You know, I just don't believe that they. You know, I I think that. Uh, yeah, you know, the public sector in general and some of their expenditures and some of you know the managing of their own house could have been done in a way that was more reflective of what the rest of us are going through in the private sector, which is having to tighten our belts. Well, I have to say, as somebody who's been in business my entire adult life, I would love to work, you know, go through state by state to actually, you know, squeeze out efficiencies and um, create cost savings, just like you can do in a million private firms as well. Um, right. You know, it's not just government that's inefficient and needs to be, um, you know, cleaned out. It's, you know, it's basically almost any organization you can figure out ways of improving the processes and, and things like that. Sure. The problem is again it's a question of timing because if you do it right now every single person that you lay off on a job that contributes to unemployment so again if you look at Obama's record for job creation it isn't as great as it would have been because of the loss of jobs in the public sector now you and I may disagree about which jobs should be public and private for certain things but a job is a job is a job, and right now when you're talking about this level of, of, of unemployment, I'm not sure it's a great thing to have cut the budgets and therefore gotten rid of all of those people. Right. Let not all at once. People we should have gotten rid of. Well, not all at once. It would have to be done carefully because you're right. If they just simply stepped in and cut everybody out, that would lead to um, you know, economic dislocation. But there's a difference between inefficiency in government and inefficiency in the private sector because the government is supported by us, the taxpayers. That comes out of our pockets. I mean, if if a private company is inefficient, then don't do business with them. They'll probably go out of business eventually. But it doesn't directly uh, – it doesn't come out of my pocket. It, it basically ultimately hurts them and their investors. But the government has to be more efficient because the government is us. We fund it. And I think that we can expect them to make deductions without, uh, as I said, I mean, affect all of the basic services that we that we know and love. And and that, in a sense, I think that the um, the stimulus package, besides the fact that it create it increased the debt, the national debt by a trillion dollars, I think that it enabled the governments to postpone the inevitable, which was to engage in a reasonable house cleaning, just like the private sector has had to do, and to cut the size of, of some of their operations. I know in Massachusetts, Deval Patrick has cut certain things in the government, but only because he had to. It wasn't like, I mean, there was no money in the bank account. I mean, he would have to write checks and those checks would start bouncing. I mean, it wasn't like you know, something that he wanted to do. And I think that there should have been more of that, and I think that would have built public confidence in, to the point where the public would have then been willing to accept a tax increase. But see, here's the problem is that even if – suppose that Democrats agreed, we want to go in and we want to apply 
um, you know, a professional approach to process improvement in government, which, by the way, those things are going on all the time. I mean, I have friends who work in um, the, you know, government of the Commonwealth, and they're in charge of those kinds of process improvements. Well, first of all, you've got fiefdoms and turf wars and, you know, all of that other macho stuff that's going on in any organization. And, you know, sometimes it's women, but a lot of times it's men. And then you, you've got the other thing, which is, is is that Republicans never want to just improve efficiencies. They want to cut the actual programs because they have a different view of the role of government in our lives. In some cases. So if we could just come together and say, well, let's start with just improving efficiencies, then the Republicans would get some things they want and Democrats would be willing to cooperate because, of course, who doesn't want more efficiencies? But to me, the problem I see is that Republicans just want to go blow it up, use a scorched earth policy, and that's why Democrats say, no, 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 we're not going that far. We're not going that far. So that's the problem of the common ground is that I don't see Republicans being willing to compromise on that. Well, I don't know if you've ever interviewed, Samantha, people that are involved in the forensic accounting business. I mean, I had this guy on a while back who was – they were hired. They're called forensic accountants. And they were being hired by governments, actually in the South, um, and also some private businesses. And they go in and they objectively take a look at an agency and they make the hard and sometimes mean-sounding decisions that bring about the cuts that have to be made and um, as a way to save the company or as a way to save a, a local municipality. And I think that there has to be some kind of a system in place where we can have forensic accounting done to all government agencies, because I really think that they can all be reduced by a certain percentage without affecting the basic services. Now, as far as Republicans wanting to totally slash certain programs, I don't know about that. I mean, can you give me some examples of that? Um, what's commonly called welfare. I mean, yeah, I, think, I, mean, I, no, hear, I, it on, I, I hear it on talk radio constantly, constantly, constantly. I, mean, that's I don't all, think so. People get I very upset about it. I correspond on Facebook with conservatives all the time, and particularly what I find is that people, you know, kind of everyday working people, that is something that, in my view, they're absolutely fixated on. And sometimes I think, you know, but it's not the biggest percentage of the i mean it's it's a minuscule part of the federal budget for example right. you know or even the state budget and so you know i say look if we're going to cut costs let's go for the low-hanging fruit and let's go for the thing that's going to have you know it's the 80 20 rule spend 80 percent of your time on you know the, the, the thing that's going to give you 80 percent of the impact and they're like focused on this it's not even 20 percent it's like you know 0.2 percent of the budget but it's because they personally know people that in their view are taking Taking money who should not, who right. they feel are not entitled to, and so it's very real and it's right in front of their faces. So yeah, it's something I hear. I listen to WRKO. I listen to other stations. To me, that's just a nonstop, never-ending. Well, it's it, a basic theme of the Tea Party. Well, we, first of all, Samantha, I think that you're, you're, you're talking about people who are very much libertarian on the I was I would call them on the far right people who really want to see absolute limited government they they're people who follow Ayn Rand who I admire but yet it's way it's it's much to the right of me in that they only believe that the government should be involved in policing and military and all you know foreign policy stops at the water's edge and and the system of justice and that's about it 
And, yeah, you I mean, those people want to get rid of, you know, not just welfare. They want to get rid of uh, a lot of things. They want to get rid of Social Security. But that's that's not – And the Fed. The, <laughs> the Fed, They want sure. to get rid of the Fed. <laughs> yeah, and they want to get rid of the Department of Education. I've heard all that stuff. But that's yeah. not the Republican position. It's not the conservative position. I think that the conservative position was best uh, – and, by the way, on the far left, we've got people who want a total takeover of everything, too. I mean, right. we could talk about what socialists are calling for. And I've interviewed those people and heard them on talk shows, including mine. But I think that the general – uh, Republican position was best expressed uh, with regard to welfare by Ronald Reagan when he spoke of reforming welfare entitlements. A lot of those reforms eventually were put in place by Bill Clinton. When he said that welfare programs are in place to help, quote, the truly needy, unquote. And I think that's what conservatives view it as. And uh, that it's probably better managed on a local and state level because that's where people actually live and where they can be treated with dignity as individuals rather than put in these massive federal programs, which I think have social ramifications that are not healthy. And that basically the conservative position is to call for a, a reform to, with the, to the degree of not only getting rid of fraud, which, which is there, and you have to admit that, but also some of the sort of social engineering aspects to it. It's just really supposed to be, and originally was set up as a program going all the way back to FDR, that would deal with the truly needy, people who really could not support themselves. They could not get help because they didn't have family. They didn't have friends. They didn't have a social infrastructure, and they had to turn to the government. And in that case, I think that conservatives do support public welfare. Uh, it's not that they want to totally abolish it. That's a real radical libertarian. That's the Ron Paulers. I mean, that that type of thing. Well, I hear a lot of people, though. I mean, they, they say that they just want to um, – they say that, yes, they want to leave a place for some people who truly need it, but it gets down to um, what, in your view, means that somebody truly needs it. Because, you know, again, um, I've heard conservative talk show hosts say that if you have a cell phone, it means that you don't need any public assistance. If you have a refrigerator, you don't need any public assistance. They take it to that extreme. And my feeling is it is a program in order to help people reintegrate into society to the extent that they can. And so we have to say, I want an incentive-driven safety net support system. That's what I want. And so the first thing is... Well, your position is very conservative on that, Samantha, because that's the conservative position, not to have... Uh, welfare become a way of life and not to to become a dependency type uh, modality. And, and again, I don't care how much percentage of the national budget goes to it. I'm talking about what welfare is and what it does as a social phenomenon. Now, did you see the movie, what was that movie called, with uh, with Gabourey Sidibe? Um, I forget the name, Precious. No, I did not. Now, I know that was just a, a fictional account, um, but um, I actually saw it with my liberal co-host at the time. I went out and visited him in San Francisco, and we both came away from that with the same opinion, which was that this, even though it was a, it was a, a display of the worst side of welfare, it also was not untrue. I mean, it does have negative social connotations in terms of what it does to people what it does to people spiritually, what it does to people emotionally. You know, it, it creates this, uh, 
you know, it really does, in a sense, remove a person's dignity when the government, especially when it's on a federal level, they come in and they, they create these these programs that uh, that aren't really helping people do just what you said you'd like to see them do, which is to get back into uh, productive life. Now, there's some people who can never get totally back, and they will need public assistance for their entire life, and I think that conservatives support that. There are people who are mentally ill or who are mentally retarded or whatever. You know, well, and going back to Ronald Reagan, I mean, quite frankly, he's the one who closed down a lot of the mental institutions. And no, that was a court those order. those people on the street. Samantha, that was a federal court order. He did not – actually, he opposed it. That would happen because a federal judge in, in, in California deemed that they had to be shut down. It was not something that the Reagan administration wanted to do, and it was a disaster. I agree with you. Yeah, because there are a lot of people on the street right now, I mean, in the Boston area, who need to have a safe place to live, and they're not okay. You know, I I mean, there's a guy who's who's hunched over and sleeping in the subway that I go through every single day. No, I agree, and they they should be institutionalized. They they need to have a place, and and, and I support, and I think that, again, that was something that was in place in this country going back 100 years, which is special, usually funded by local and state governments, institutions – that uh, did help people who really would not go to help themselves. They they were they were beyond that. You know, there's th- something that has been done. I mean, I would contend that probably the one organization in this country that has done more work for the poor and has done more social work than any probably in history is is the Catholic Church. Uh, you take a look at Catholic charities and some of the the hospitals and hospices and social agencies that they have maintained without a nickel of government support, and and it's an extraordinary thing to see. I mean, uh, you know, I've followed some of that. Um, some of these groups, and uh, I mean, there's one in, I was broadcasting up in Nashua, New Hampshire. There was an order of nuns that came down from Canada back in the over 100 years ago and set up a whole system there of hospitals and, and homes and for shelters for the hungry and whatnot, that is an incredible infrastructure and done without any government support. So, I mean, I think that in a sense, if, if there's, you know, if these are support, you know, maybe they should get some government support, but these are issues that our society wants to address because we are a rich society. I mean, I don't think yeah, anybody yeah. wants to have homeless people and people starving yeah. in the streets. Right. But it's the a matter question of how you is get whether there. or not it, it becomes a, an, an agency that is uh, – used to redistribute wealth and to create big bureaucracies where a lot of liberals get big jobs. I'm sorry to say that, but <laughs> that's maybe here's my conservative side coming out. But people well, who are paying taxes resent that when they see that happen. Well, you know, they and, actually you know, want it, would rather it go to help people. Well, you know, it's interesting what you say because – um, you know, I think, you know, the Catholic Church has done a lot of things, which is absolutely great. A lot of other churches, I didn't grow up Catholic. I grew up Lutheran and uh, on the plains. I'm a prairie girl. Um, you know, as I say, the daughter of a farmer's daughter. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of good stuff that goes out there. The problem I have with running charity through those kinds of private institutions is because they include their moral judgments in that. So, for example, if there's a procedure that I want to get and I have to go to a private entity, they may not offer something that I consider to be essential because that's, you know, their moral, you know, perspective on that. And so, so what's happening is that I'm being limited. That's why I want that money funded through the government because I don't want 
I don't I don't want limitations to be put on that according to you know what what they believe. Well, so Samantha, I'm totally first of all, opposed to. No, I I'm, I understand what you're getting at, and and I think that that's part of the price of freedom that they are religious organizations also, and that they do have certain moral and ethical strictures, and that's that's part of freedom. I would suggest to you that there are other charities that have other positions where, where where someone can be helped. And I think you're probably making reference to abortion and services such around, you know, birth control. And I think that there are plenty of private organizations. I mean, look at Planned Parenthood. They, they, that's a private organization. I mean, they, they, they provide, I mean, why can't they provide, uh, you, you know, abortions to women who are indigent? I don't, I'm not against that. You know, it's a, uh, it's you know it seems to me that there's an infrastructure in place of of uh, big foundations and and other private institutions that that do support abortion and they they can help with that just like lawyers help with pro bono legal work for the poor you know i just think not, if you go to a hospital you should be able to get any medical assistance that you are in need of and like you know, I'm in Boston. There are a million hospitals, so it's not that right. much of an issue. You can get on the subway. You can go find one. You know, you go to Minot, North Dakota, and there are only two hospitals in town, and one is Catholic, and the other one is Methodist. What are you going to do? Well, then what? Well, I guess here's an interesting question, then, Samantha. What do you do if you have uh, an institution that is run by people who are opposed to abortion on moral grounds? I mean, I'm not. And by the way, I my position on that is uh, legal abortion. I mean, I'm, I'm pro-choice. But um, what what do what, you know? At the same time, I understand the respect that uh, that other people. It's a very profound issue. I mean, it's one that I don't think is a gender issue either, since more women tend to be pro-life than men, at least according to polls that go back to Roe versus Wade. But um, I, I guess it's 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 a conflict of freedom. I mean. You know, you're right. Where can a woman turn if she wants an abortion in a town where the hospital is Catholic? I mean, I, I don't know. The it's not an easy answer, but I do. I don't think it's right for the government to force that hospital to do something that's against their moral judgment. That's right. But number one, definitely, they should not then get tax dollars because I don't want my tax dollars spent, um, you know, in, in in such a way that it actually reduces the choices that for the general population that are using those services. And number two, I think that, you know, that's where, you know, to me, government is the collective manifestation of ourselves. It's the public. Government is us. Right. A private institution is a private institution. They can make choices about who they let in and who they don't let in. I mean, there there, there are restrictions that we don't necessarily have any control over. So that that's why, honestly, for me, government is more freedom than these other private institutions. Now, when it comes to selling goods and services and a lot of other things, fine. Ideas, creativity. I love the private sector. I like the concept of competition. But when it comes to things like this, I think mm -hmm. that it's it's up to us to make sure that we all have access, that we all have freedom. And well, I yeah, guess so that, I think there's this. a... Yeah. You say that the government is us, but the fact is that on issues of life and death, whether they be abortion, whether they be euthanasia, whether they be the death penalty, whatnot, there is a very profound divide in this country between people who support these things and people who are opposed to them, and that is the government. The government is us. What do you do when you have almost 50% of people in this country who do not support legal abortion? Are, are they part of us? 
My, my point here is that while I am pro-choice when it comes to abortion, I don't think it is appropriate in this country to expect taxpayer money to go toward funding abortion because, first of all, it's not in the Constitution, and secondly, because there are so many Americans who are opposed to it on moral grounds that I don't think it's right to require that their money go to pay for something that they oppose on moral grounds. Now, that doesn't mean that it, it should be banned at all. It should be free, but not supported by taxpayers. Yeah, I guess I disagree because I have things okay. that I support with my tax dollars that I don't necessarily agree with that I think are like actually what? wrong. Rendition. What you do know, you mean? What's rendition? rendition? For one. Rendition is where you, you know, where we, um, we ran political prisoners through other countries so that they could be um, tortured in order to get information from them. I mean, we did that as a government. My tax dollars supported that. I disagree with it. I thought it was immoral. I thought it went against the Geneva Convention. Okay. I'm with you on that, so, and I think that I mean, that's something that we could get. I mean, I don't know if the Obama administration is doing that now. Who knows? But I know what you mean. They were basically turning over terrorists to other countries so that they could be, you know, they, we wouldn't have to have, we wouldn't have to have we our hands. We wouldn't have blood on our hands, basically. Yeah, I, guess, no, no, I don't think it's that. I think it's just that we didn't want to have trouble with the administration being accused of torture and, and whatnot. And, and these were very bad people, by the way. I mean, we weren't just handing over people who were, you know, because we didn't like them. But putting that aside, I think that those sorts of policies, that is something that the Constitution, you know, Article 1, Section 8, it, if there's a declared war, and there hasn't been, of course, since World War II, but if there is, and we've had many that are close to declared, and including the, um, the, the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, in my opinion, then the President of the United States, as Commander-in-Chief, has a certain amount of leeway when it comes to conducting that war. And if we don't like it, then we can, re -elect, we can elect another President. In fact, we did. We elected Barack Obama. And you that's right, but in the that. meantime, my tax dollars are going to pay for it, and that's where but, we start on this. I understand that, but the way you deal with that is that you, you have elections, and you elect somebody who supports a policy that, that, that would be otherwise. Do, do you know what I mean? I mean, that, that's something that's uh, – the Constitution does give the president certain leeway when it comes to conducting war. That's not unconstitutional. Um, it's not right, and I tend to agree with you, but – you know, it's it's not. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that the government has to pay for abortions. But at the same time, the Constitution, Article One, Section Eight, does say that the Commander in Chief, once the Congress has been consulted, and even though we haven't had declarations of war since 1941, nevertheless, the Congress, you know, in by present standards, if there is a war, the President, as Commander in Chief, is is given the constitutional power to conduct the war. So. You know, That's we right. Well, the Constitution, the, the the way the Constitution is written is that anything is permitted unless it's specifically excluded in the Constitution, which is why originally we didn't even have the Bill of Rights, right? So there's nothing that says that abortions can't be paid for through tax money. It's you know it, it it's, no, it's, it's not, not a constitutional but, question. Look, and, and I and, and, look if if somebody out there, if we passed a um, a law in this country saying that abortion should be funded then I would respect it, but I, I just would point out that on issues of life and death, um, the, the, it should, we shouldn't be doing it even if we agree with it because there are so many people who object to it on moral grounds. And it's not a matter of, um, you know, this isn't an issue that's part of, I mean, the issue of war is a part of the Constitution, 
But issues of health care and issues of, um, you know, those sorts of things, generally speaking, they, they've been left to the states, first of all. But even in the context of, of a federal uh, paradigm, which has been in place since Roe versus Wade, there's nothing in there that says that, that the public has to pay for it. There's nothing in Roe versus Wade that says that the public has to pay for it. I mean, there, there's never been That's support right. well, in Congress. Right. Well, well, I guess when when we first started talking about this, I wasn't even thinking about the financing. I was just thinking about having the service offered at, you know, one of the two hospitals available to me if I'm living in Minot, North Dakota. Um, And actually, right now, there is only one place. What? On that issue, I mean, if let's say you you are a woman in Minot, North Dakota, and you want you need an abortion or want an abortion, you're choosing one. I'm not even talking about an issue where where your life is at risk. I'm saying that it's elective, and you right. go to a hospital. Doesn't that hospital or doesn't the community of Minot, North Dakota, or the state have some kind of an obligation to help you get to a place where you could have that done? Because I think they no. should. No, no, that's the problem. Well, maybe that's the issue. I mean, it's not to make – you can't make the hospital do it. You can't yeah. make somebody perform. But there should be a means – and I think that certainly around here, if someone goes to, like, St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Boston, which is a Catholic hospital still, and they say, I want an abortion, they, the hospital is going to make sure that they get properly directed to the right location where they can have, they have it done. They're not going to do it, but they, but they take measures – and uh, I've actually talked about this with um, a regular co-host of mine, Deacon Michael Wanowitz, who comes on with me on Tuesdays. He's a Catholic de- theologian, and, and he's made that point also, that uh, while they won't do it because it's against the church belief, they will make sure that someone is properly directed, especially if it's an issue of life and death, you know, if a woman is going to die unless she has an abortion. But the thing is, there are cases where people have been denied the morning after pill. I mean, you know, I mean, these, these in reality, the things happen. That's the problem. No, and that's I, where I the collective we has to step in and make sure it happens. So it's not well, like you I, agree I, I, that you know, if it's not happening, it should happen. Samantha, we've reached pretty much the end of the hour. I would just say that we agree in, in principle. My approach to it, though, is much more of a freedom-oriented approach, which is leaving in place people who object to it, but yet making sure that it's available for people who want it without, you know, without too much government um, involvement. But uh, this has been interesting. We should do it again. We should. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Samantha, do you want to let anyone know where they can reach a website to listen to you or anything like that? Yep, samanthaclemons.com. Just go there and you everything is there, where I am, where I'm on, how to reach me, and so forth. We'd love to hear from you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Samantha. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Same to you. We'll talk soon. And that pretty much wraps things up for today. I shall return, God willing, Monday at noon Eastern Standard Time here at Cyber Station USA Radio Network, Blog Talk Radio. I want to thank our radio affiliates. I want to thank Lars Christensen for producing today over at Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Stay tuned for Patrick O'Heffernan on Cyber Station And have a good afternoon, everybody.